and Kennedy. It's been on my mind all week. So I'm just thankful to God <clears throat> that the mishap happened. All things work together for the good. So, um, and then my brother had mentioned some stuff that I hadn't even talked to him about really what, what I was going to be teaching on today. But before I get started, I want to say thank you. I want to say um, a blessing from our church. In, in, we actually go to church in Cherry Hill. We live in Camden. Um, we've been praying for your church because we know the transition you guys are in. And we support you. And we're constantly praying for you. And like my brother said, my wife and four kids have come with us. I got all girls, 14, 8, 6, and 5. I always get that mixed up. I always get their names mixed up, too. You can ask them. I call one the other and the other the one. So. Um, but we had, a, we had a great time. It's good to be back in the area. Not used to the trees. Not used to the, tr the cows. We don't see cows in the city. And the smells just come back. And it's just... I was telling my wife, oh, I'd love to live back here. It's just so beautiful. Um, but God has us where we are now. We live right in the heart of Camden, a uh, very um, dangerous city, as, as you may know or have read or have seen reports of. But we love it. We love the people there. And we, we, uh, we get along fine with our neighbors. And we've had no mishaps or incidents yet. God has protected us. Um, but keep us in your prayers because we do need them. And... Um, soon we're going to be transitioning um, out of Camden ourselves. So we've been, my wife and I have been praying about that and been looking into some different things. Um, I can't tell you how important we're going to be studying in, in the book of Romans this morning. And the book of Romans is one of my favorites of all time. It's very deep. It's, it's got a lot in it. Um, It's deep in theology, deep in doctrine, but it is very, very practical in application. Sometimes we may get scared off by some scriptures and think, oh my goodness, what's he talking about? What's going on? Romans is one of those books. It used to scare me. And you get into it and you really go through it and you observe the passages line by line and you start asking questions and you start seeing things and a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit opening our eyes is important. This morning, I'd like to ask you to open your Bible to Romans 12. I know, I don't know, I don't think the passage is going to be up here, but I'm going to be reading from the book of Romans from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. And the reason I'm doing that is because it, it, he words it so well. He words it so well. I typically study from the New King James, um, but this morning I'll be reading from, from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. But I also want you to remember to, if you can mark this down, there's going to be some scripture references. Um, we're going to look at 1 John 2, verse 15. That's 1 John 2, verse 15. Ephesians 4, 11. It's Ephesians 4.11 and Matthew 5.44. And I may bring a few more in there as well as we teach. 
Um, let's read the passage. Y'all, y'all in your in your Bibles? I know you don't, you can't follow along, but just just listen to these words. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give Him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to Him and acceptable by Him. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may, appro- you may prove in practice that plan, that the plan of God for you is good, meets all His demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. As your spiritual teacher, I give this piece of advice to each one of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. For just as you have many members in one physical body, and those members differ in their functions, so we, though many in number, compose one body in Christ, and are all members of one another. Through the grace of God, we have, the, we have different gifts. If our gift is preaching, let us preach to the limit of our vision. If it is serving others, let us consecrate our service. If it is teaching, let us give all we have to our teaching. If our gift be the stimulating of the faith of others, let us set ourselves to it. Let the man who is called to give, give freely. Let the man who wields authority think of responsibility. And let the man who feels sympathy for his fellow acts cheerfully. Let us have no imitation Christian love. Let us have a genuine break with evil and a real devotion to good. Let us have real warm affection for one another as between our brothers and willingness to let the other man have the credit. Let us not allow the slackness to spoil our work and let us keep the fires of the Spirit burning as we do our work for God. Base your happiness on your hope in Christ. When trials come, endure them patiently. Steadfastly maintain the habit of prayer. Give freely to fellow Christians in want, never grudging a meal or a bed to those who need them. As for those who try to make your life a misery, bless them. Don't curse, bless. Share the happiness of those who are happy, the sorrow of those who are sad. Live in harmony with each other. Don't become snobbish, but take a real interest in ordinary people. Don't become set in your own opinions. Don't pay back a bad turn by a bad turn to anyone. Don't say it doesn't matter what people think. But see that your public behavior is above criticism. As far as your responsibility goes, live at peace with everyone. Never take vengeance into your own hands. My dear friends, stand back and let God punish if He will. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. These are the words of God. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not allow yourself to be overpowered with evil. Take the offensive. Overpower evil by good. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are honored that we can come here today, worship you, give all our praise to you, give you all the glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the grace and mercy that you have shown him. We ask now that your grace and mercy fills our lives, that we may take this word and live it out daily as we go to work, as we go to play, as we go to school. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, this, this is a, a deep, really deep book, but it's very, very practical. And Paul, in Paul's letter, <clears throat> there's a lot of foundation, doctrinal foundation. And throughout this letter, I don't know if you read the newsletter that I, that was sent out this week. I've given a brief summary or overview. Um, God talk, uh, Paul talks about God's righteousness, then the redemption through Christ, our justification by faith, the need for the gospel, the rejection of the gospel, growing in righteousness, our service or our duty as Christians or if you like our Christian behavior, our Christ-like behavior. And these are just a few of the things that are in there. But today we're, you know, start, we're going to be in chapter 12. And it's very important um, that we, as we read the Scripture, we really pay attention to it and really observe it. The great reformer Martin Luther had his opinions on the letter to the Romans. It was the book that changed his life. It was the book or the letter, I should say, we, we, we call it a book, but it's actually a letter that revolutionized his life and it changed church history. He was one of the first reformers. He was a Catholic priest. And when he opened the book and started studying the book, because he was teaching from it, his, his eyes were opened. And he said this, that it's well worth the Christian to memorize the book of Romans word for word as though it were the daily bread for the soul. I think I put, I think I put that in the newsletter this week, if you remember that. So what we want to look at is a total, there's three points that I, I really want to get to this morning, is a total commitment to worship, a func uh, gifts as the function in the church and, and marks of the believer, a behavior of the believer. And in verse 1, you'll notice chapter 12 um, in, in the New King James, it goes like this, I beseech you therefore, brethren. It's not a word we use anymore today. Um, I don't know of anybody that does use it. It would sound silly in our conversations because we've developed uh, a whole different style or, or lingo in our day and age. But in the New King James, it says, I beseech you. I think in the, in the ESV, it says, I beg you or urge you. And in, in Philip's paraphrase, he says, I beg you. So this is Paul pleading, pleading with the Roman church. It's not a command at this point. He's not commanding them. But he's pleading them. It's an entreaty. 
He's saying, please, please. Who better than Paul to understand what the mercies of God are? Outside of Christ, I can't think of no one. Maybe you can say yourself. I can say myself. I might want to fight Paul on that one, but the mercies of God. Here's Paul going around the countryside persecuting Christians. Well-educated. Thought he knew what God wanted him to do. Traveling the region, hunting down and persecuting and overseeing the murder of God's children. And you can read in Acts 9 the story of his conversion. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. Confronted on the way to Damascus. Confronted. Knocked off his horse. Flat on the ground. And this merciless person met Jesus. And Christ said, after Paul was like, Lord, who are you? And Jesus, why are you persecuting me? Changed Paul's life. Paul goes from there. He spends approximately three years learning. He learned everything that he speaks of in his letters in the, in the New Testament. The majority of the New Testament is written by Paul. He learned it from Christ. He didn't go learn it from the other apostles. He spent time in revelation by Christ teaching him. So Paul understands this mercy. He was merciless. God had every right to take him and cast him into the pit of hell for persecuting those that believed in him. Paul thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. Think about it today. It's not like on today. We, we, we see in, in, in this world people who call themselves Christians, who live a certain way, do certain things, because this is what God wants me to do. I was one of those. Until Jesus confronted me, not like Paul, but he confronted me. Changed my life. Put me where I am. Set me straight. So Paul is saying, please, I'm begging you. Please understand the mercies of God. So those mercies, if you think about it, the ones that would have applied to Paul, apply to us. We're still needing the mercy of God. This world still needs the mercy of God. Because we continually do, do things that we are not supposed to be doing. And the world system, its morals, what they call morals, are wicked in God's sight. He can wipe us out at any time He wants to. But His mercies continue through our lives today. And I like the way Philip says it. And this is what Paul's getting at when he's pleading with them. I beg you, I please, I'm begging you. <laughs> Excuse me. Philip says, <clears throat> with eyes wide open. It's like 
now I've shown you, I've explained to you, God has told you what he has done from Adam to this point. In Phillips' paraphrase, it comes to my mind like an aha moment. Now you get it. Now you see. Now you know. So here's what we need to do. And this is Paul encouraging them with commands that now you know what God has done, who God is, and what the purpose of Christ was. Paul talks about there's, there's no one good, not one. If that were the case, Christ wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross and be raised again and seated at the Father and mediate for us. So no one was good. There was a purpose to God's plan. And what Paul's getting at here with this mercy is that out of graciousness, out of gratitude, that we give our bodies to God. Verse 2, or I'm, I'm sorry, still in verse 1. Present your bodies. How do we present our bodies? We present them, Paul says, as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? What's a living sacrifice? Well, if you, if, if you know anything about the sacrificial system, something had to die and had to be consecrated, made holy, purified, blameless, spotless lamb, had to die for the sins of somebody else. That went on until Christ came and died on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, that was it. There was no more sacrifice. He tore the veil. There's no need for that altar anymore. So something has to die. It's the old self that has to die. Living sacrifice. It's the new self that has to live. There's an exchange there. Something has to give. Something has to die. And if we're to be living sacrifices, there's one way to do it. It's to stay at the cross daily. What I mean by at the cross is praying, reading, meditating, thoughts on God, thoughts on what Jesus has done, thankfulness for His mercy and the redemption of our souls. It's a daily process. And you think about it, and we're called to take up our crosses daily as well, right? Carry, the, carry our burdens. We never forget the cross. We always need the gospel. I don't care if you're 30 years a Christian. You need to hear the gospel every day to remind us because we forget. In our day, we have distractions. We have the internet. We got Facebook. You got to be on Facebook. Oh, there's Twitter. We got Twitter, Instagram, football games on. 
got all the sports activities to do. I got to mow the lawn, got to do this. Big distractions. The news is a horrible distraction. I cut the news out for quite a while because it was just, it was too much for me anymore. So we need to focus daily on that, on that cross as a living sacrifice. I love the way Calvin kind of describes what a, what a living sacrifice is. Um, I'll, let me read the quote for you. It's kind of long, but I'll read it and hopefully we can uh, make it clear. Calvin said, If we then are not our own, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee, to which must direct all the acts of our lives. We are not our own. We let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. We let us therefore set our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, here's the flip side. We are God's. Let us therefore live for Him and die for Him. I'm going to pause here for a second. Die for Him. That could be die for your faith. Die in your faith. So we live for Him and we die for Him. We are God's. Let all the parts of our lives Life accordingly strive toward Him as our only lawful goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he is not his own, he has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason that he may yield it to God. For as consulting our own self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of our of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves but follow the leading of the Lord alone. Love that quote. I don't quote Calvin often, but I love that quote. So God now controls this. This is becoming a living sacrifice. This is what we, we sacrifice ourselves to God. He controls us. We're to follow Him first and foremost. That means at work, in our marriages, in our dating relationships, at school, raising our children, and in our relationships to each other. Even in, I like to keep this in mind because where we are, we have a lot of this, even in traffic. You've driven in the Philly area, you know what I'm talking about. It's not a pleasant experience. But think about it. We're not our own. We're, we're God's. We must always pay attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God will prompt you in certain instances, especially in some of your work relationships. My work relationships, I get frustrated. And there's some things I'd love to say to some people. And in our marriages, 
you're not married, is tough. It's a joy. But you take two people with two strong wills and put them together, you need Jesus. And my wife always says this to me. She said this to me a few weeks ago. She was telling somebody, they were talking about their marriage, and she said, if you put Jesus Christ first and foremost in your relationship with Him, stay focused on Jesus, your marriage is going to blossom. Now, she didn't say it exactly that way. I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but I know what she meant. There's nothing that can stand in the way of your marriage. It can't break you up. Because you're focused on the other person. You're focused on doing what is right. You're loving them the way Christ would love them. So, if He's really Lord to us, we need to submit our lives to Him. Sacrifice continually, constantly, every day, in everything, in all that we are, in all that we do. People outside the church, non-believers, they're watching us. They're watching me all the time. I've constantly got to be aware of that. Constantly. Because I don't want to set a bad example. I don't want them to see uh, hypocrisy in my life. There's a lot of things I do to remind myself of that. I carry a cross in my pocket and I know I might be getting a little irritated. I put my hand in my pocket and start rubbing the cross and saying a prayer. Some people wear, like our pastor wears t-shirts, Jesus shirts. He says it's a reminder to him. He says it's a witness for him to others because people ask him all the time, well, what's this about? He says it's a reminder to keep him accountable of his faith. So living sacrifice, it's active. It's dying to the old self and it's living to the new self with full commitment to God alone. Giving up our entirety, that is what we need to do. That is our goal. Our individual selves as well as the body of believers. This letter is a personal letter, but it's a corporate letter. And we function as a body, whether you're in Camden or Hershey. We function together as a body. Working in harmony with one another and united is a form of worship to God. It honors God. It also becomes a witness for God. Because people are going to say there's something different about living legacy. There's something different. These people love each other. They support each other. They're in agreement. You know, we belong to Lions Club. We can't agree on one thing. But we have a commonality. We have Christ. That's our, that is the thing that binds us together. So we're to give it all. We're to give it all over to God. Our entire lives. Our corporate body lives. As living sacrifices, we... need to be aware of a lot of what goes in, into our lives. Movies, television, friends, 
influences. Because they can creep up on you. We can get temptation. And staying in the Word will keep you from that. But in living our former life, the old self is destroyed. And we're raised up into a new life. We're, we're being, um, as one, one commentator put it, we're, we're being uh, reconstructed. And if we are to be holy and acceptable, continuing on in verse 1, to God, which is to say, God has given us the gift of righteousness. Our position is made holy. He's the one that makes us holy to be that sacrifice. Remember when it said in the sacrificial system, when they brought a lamb, the lamb had to be spotless. It had to be consecrated by the priest. Then it was offered as a sacrifice. Christ did that for us. So we can stand before God positionally as holy. But we also have a part to do too. We also live and walk in holiness for Him. It's our reasonable service. The word for in, in this tent, in the New King James, the word for reasonable service is logikos in the Greek. It's where we get our word logic or reasoning. So Paul's calling us to use our minds constantly. You think about it. Everything that we do, it comes through our eyes and into our heads, eventually into our hearts and out of our mouths. Our minds are very important. We'd be dead without them. I'd say we'd be zombies. My daughter likes zombies. So. so we get our word reason or logic from there. And what Paul's intending here is that we meditate, we read, we study. We pay attention. We think. And this is our act of intelligent worship. This is a part of it. This is a part of what we do as a living sacrifice. We keep the Word in our memories. We hide it in our hearts. So when temptation comes, we can pull it out of our file index. We have an app that we pull. And we bring that Scripture to mind. Defeat the enemy. Stop the sin. Stop the temptation. We're to walk intelligently. In other words, we're not to be knuckle-headed Christians. I love that word. Mickey uses that word. I heard him once use that word. We use a lot in Philly. A lot of people in Philly and New Jersey, they talk like that. You're not knuckle-headed Christians. Just because you got saved doesn't mean your mind doesn't work anymore. Doesn't mean you got saved that you wait until Sunday morning to get some intelligence put back into your body. Wisdom is staying in the Word. Wisdom is listening to the instruction 
at church as well as during the week. Accountability when the men get together. There's a lot of people that can be saved from a lot of things if we just stand up and hold each other accountable and if we just sit there and take the accountability. It's important. Our minds are important. My parents used to say, God gave you a brain. Use it. They'd say that to my brother more than me. But I knew what they were talking about. Did you think about it? When we were kids, we did some pretty stupid stuff. When you ask my brother, he can probably give you some stories. Really stupid stuff. A lot of it got us in trouble. But in this sense, we're to use it accordingly, according to the Scriptures. Because in our own selves, in our fallen nature, in our sin, we tend to use our minds for our own desires, our selfishness. What we want, not what God wants. But remember, we're living sacrifices. We're not our own anymore. We're not our own. So we use it according our minds according to, to God's way. We use our mind to cast down imaginations and keep us from sin. Verse 2. In the New King James it says, and do not be conformed to this world. And do not be conformed to this world. I love how Phillips says it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Isn't that a great picture? Imagine a potter squeezing clay and molding it to what he wants. It's what the world wants us to do. My daughter and I were watching um, The Matrix. We were talking about this yesterday. Have you ever seen The Matrix? And Morpheus and Neo meet for the first time and he says, I'm going to tell you something, Neo. The world's being pulled over from your eyes. They don't want you to know the truth. So we're not to be conformed to this world. John Stott, love Stott. You get a chance to read anything of his. This one happens to be the radical disciple. He talks about conformity to this world. It doesn't mean that we preserve our holiness by escaping this world. Nor does it mean that we sacrifice our holiness by conforming to it. A.W. Tozer, and I keep this on my phone, says, if I look to the world, I will conform to its ways. If I look at the Word, I'll conform to God. Very strong encouragements. Look to God, not the world. 
Because the world will only lead you astray, tie you up, make you do things that you should not be doing. In 1 John, if you can turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world. John says this. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's some strong words. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not the Father, it's not of the Father, but of this world. And the world's passing away. And he goes on to say, in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The world here he's talking about, and what Paul's talking about is the world system, the world, the way the world uh, tricks you into things, thinking that I'm okay. Well, if it feels good, do it. What I think is right is different from what you think is right. These are all lies. Remember when I was saying how Paul talks about none of us are good? Not one of us? We have sinful hearts. We might have been made righteous in God's sight positionally, but we still carry sin. We still have flaws. We're not cured of it. Not until the day we go be with Christ. The day which we hope and look for. Soon. Especially in our world. The world system will try and pull you from church. We'll try and pull you from God. Like I've, I was teaching at our church and I was telling them how that uh, this book, this Bible, will keep you from sin in the world, or sin in the world will keep you from this book. So we're to be transformed. How do we? How are we transformed? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, our intellectual faculty, our reasoning, our rationale. We worship God with our minds too, just worshiping with music and however else you want to call worship or see worship, we worship Him with our minds first and foremost. Like I said, we need the mind to process things and that's what gets into our hearts. So we transform by renewing our minds and we renew our minds by staying in the Word of God. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just on, I don't know if you guys meet on a Wednesday night or whatever nights, not just once or twice a week, but we need to stay in the Word of God every day. I can't go a day without reading some scripture. I can't read I can't go a day without doing some sort of devotional in the morning. Sometimes I do it two, three times a day because I happen to have a little extra time afforded to me, so I'm able to do that. And I have to do it because we're tempted. We're constantly being pulled. I have to do it. We all have to do it. So the question is, are you mindful? And I think... No, it's not up there. Um, the question is, are we mindful when it comes to renewing our minds and transforming our lives? Are we reading our Bibles? There's a lot of other material to read out there. And it's good. There's good stuff. 
it's helpful, it's resources, but getting into the Word of God itself is the best thing you can do to help transform your lives. At our church, one of the things we do is we have a, a, a men and women's group. My wife and I are both involved in it. It's called an inductive Bible study. Sounds very technical and fancy. And when you first start doing it, it is very technical. It's, it's difficult. And what we do is we do a lot of observation when we're reading the Scriptures. We ask, what is living? Who is living? Why are we living? Where? When? What is a sacrifice? And it seems tedious, but these are the things that help us out tremendously. I can't tell you what it's done for my family. Tremendously changed our dynamic in our household. And I was telling uh, friends the other day that my relationship with my wife can't, can't get any better, I don't think. Because I'm so blessed by the things that they're doing in their women's group, studying the Bible, learning how to teach the Bible. And we teach the Bible daily. Or at least we should. If we have kids, we should be teaching the Bible. If you have friends or associates or people you run into, you teach the Bible. You may not always say it with your words, but you say it with your actions. So we need to renew our minds and stay in the Word. But we also have to be careful of what we read and what we see. So my question is, is what are we reading to please God? Are we reading His Word? Is what we say uh, worshiping God? Is it encouraging to others? Is it edifying? Is it glorifying God? James talks about words. Very apropos in this instance that words are powerful. So when we speak, are we speaking? And when we act, are we acting righteous as God has made us? Not a self-righteousness, but a humble righteousness. Because God showed mercy to me. I constantly have to be aware of that stuff, even with my wife. Even when we get and we get in arguments, we're not perfect. I lose the arguments a lot, but there are times when I do win. And I'm not looking to win. So, in this world. We get caught up in the dilemma of distractions and temptations and trials and suffering. And we need to use our reasoning skills. And hopefully we do so. It's our reasonable service to worship God with our minds, with our bodies. So we give God our bodies, all of us, our entirety. We don't follow the patterns of society. And we transform our minds by the reading of the Word. And when we do that, we can know what is acceptable by God and His plans for us. Because we're communicating with Him. He's talking to us through His Word. 
all these things are important for the body as well. And this is where Paul goes into the gifts. We're living sacrifices. We do not conform. We transform. We renew our minds. And then we use what God's given us. The gifts are important to the church. They're important to me. In our men's group that we have, I tell the guys all the time, please don't hold back. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. We'll get into that here. I love how in our reading, Phillips puts it this way. Your gift is preaching. Let us remember those words. The New King James says, use it. Let us preach. If it's serving, let us. If it's teaching, let us. If it's stimulating of the faith of others, let us. Let, and then he goes on to say, let the man who is called to give, give freely. Don't hold back. And the man who yields, who wields authority, think of his responsibility. Let the man who feels sympathy for his fellows act cheerfully. Use your gifts. As Paul's point here is to use your gifts. God graciously provided these gifts for us because He knows we need them. He knows we need the teachers, we need the preachers, we need the servants, we need the, the worship team, we need the audio team, we need the hospitality crew, whoever does hospitality, we need the person that cleans the church. These are important functions. These are all gifts. Now there's other spiritual gifts in the Bible, and you can read them in Corinthians, you'll, you'll find them. But all the gifts are important. It's for the functioning of the body. The body cannot work if the arms don't do anything. You're supposed to get in your car and drive somewhere. If the arms just decide one day, I'm not doing anything, and they just hang by, you can't do anything. You can't get in your car, you can't drive. If the legs decide not to walk, what happens? You go nowhere. The body's most of the body stops functioning. It's what they call in science you gain ent- uh, atrophy? Ent- atrophy? So you start to die. So it's important that we have teach or teach. Don't refuse to teach. We need the teaching. When it's important we have the worship. Leader to lead worship. We need the worship. It's important that we have all members of the body functioning as one. Because if the legs want to go this way and the arms want to go that way, what do you have? A mess. You can't get anything done. You stumble around. Ephesians 4.11 is my next reference. This is why we use the gifts and we don't hold them back and we don't keep them from being used. 4.11 And He Himself gave some to be and He Himself He being Jesus apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
That's just some of the gifts that he's talking about there. He, Jesus, God, ordained the gifts for the function of the body. Without the gifts, we'd have chaos in our churches. And might I say, we'd probably have chaos in our world because nobody would be doing the work of the church, the work of God. Because we can't function together. If we can't operate, we can't set the example. We can't let people know about God. And the pastor would have a total mess on his hands. The pastor can't do everything. The deacons can't do everything. The elders can't do everything. And sometimes I think we tend to to think they do or they should. And then when I was younger, I used to think that, well, the pastor can do it. I joke around with my pastor and say that to him all the time, but he's one person. He does these things, he's going to destroy his life, he's going to be worn out, and he's going to end up in the hospital of exhaustion or insanity. So it's important that we do these things to help out the church, to help out the pastor and the deacons and the elders. And we use them willingly. It's gratitude. It's our worship to God. Do you, do you ever think about that? It's worship when you're asked to clean the bathroom in the church. You might not think it's worship. The task that nobody wants to do. But it's our form of worship. It's, it's what we do. It's our living sacrifice. It's giving up of ourselves. Putting others before ourselves. Humbling ourselves before God. Or teaching or preaching, hospitality, greeting. It's our worship. It's how we worship God. It's all of our lives. It's all of our bodies. So how can we refuse God? That's a question I have to ask you. Can you refuse God? Or do you refuse God if you know you have a gift? Or you know you can serve in some capacity? And I'm sure at this church that there are those here who can help you find your gift or have helped you find your gift and may have drawn it out. I know my pastor has done that to me and he said, you will be doing this and you will be doing that. And you ask my wife, with him, it's not because he drives the church with an iron fist, but he just does not stop. Consistently, persistently persuading you to use your gifts, whatever it may be. So use your gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. Use them for the glory of God and for the worship of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 that we are to let love be without hypocrisy. Philip says, let let us have no imitation of Christian love. That goes for God, our love towards God. If we say we love God, then we need to walk as if we love God. We need to talk as if we love God. We need to live as if we love God. Because if He commands us to do things in His Scripture, we should do them, right? It also applies to our neighbor, our acquaintances, our children, husbands, our wives. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't just imitate. 
have a genuine break from evil and, and devoted, real devotion to good is what Philip says uh, in the NKJV it says abhor what is evil and cling to what is good these are Paul's commands these are inspired by God and this is God talking to us through Paul So let's concentrate, use our minds, and devote ourselves to good. This is our behavior part here. So our love must be genuine. And we must hate what's evil. Basically is how I would say it. I hate the one that does the evil person, I should say. That may be doing something evil, but hate what's evil. Show some compassion, some mercy. And this is, if you think about it, everything we read here in Romans 12, who does that, who's the picture of? Jesus Christ. We live in an age where we still reflect that. There will come a day when God's judgment will be dealt and handed down. But this is a picture of Christ. This is who we're to imitate. This is who we're to look like. They reflect Christ. And we should, we should be the image. We should do the same. And I constantly ask myself, and hopefully you ask yourself these questions too, am I all of this? Do I do this? Do I... Imitate Christian love? Do I hate evil? Do I stay fast to what's good and what's good is in God's Scripture and God alone? Do I show affection to others? Am I slack in my work? Do I give freely to people in need? How about... uh, People call it, like Philip says, cause misery. That's a hard one. You know what a pain in the neck is. Sometimes you want to lash out. Paul talks about that. You know, I've read through the scriptures like, you pay no one evil for evil in the New King James. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Is the possible. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably. Do not avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath. Oh, come on. Our pride keeps us from doing those things sometimes. I know the first thing I want to do is lash out. I don't want to wait till God does it. As he said, God said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do these things? Are we willing to be patient? Not get angry and sin? Like I said, there's so many times I just want to jump. take things out on everybody else, but if I'm washing, if I'm renewing my mind and I'm transforming, if my old self has died, I'm not going to say I'm going to 
kill you if somebody had done something to me. Or I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to pay them back. It's a form of our worship, our sacrifice to God. It's to let God take care of things. All this is about mercy. Mercy from God who showed it upon us to present ourselves as sacrifices and made us blameless through Jesus before God. It's about His mercy for us not to conform to the world. And it's about His mercy for us to be transformed. And it's about His mercy for us that He gave us the Scriptures. It's our handbook. It's important. You have issues? Do you turn to Dr. Phil or do you turn to the great physician? The healer of our minds, our bodies, and our souls. It's the mercy of our gifts. You realize when we show when we use our gifts merciful might not think about it but it is very merciful we're loving each other it's an act of mercy our attitudes keeping them in check it's an act of mercy not only for those that we come in contact with but for ourselves because you're not only hurting somebody with your attitude and your anger and your the issues you might take with them, but you're hurting yourself just as well. It hurts God in return. It offends God. So mercy, God's mercy, changes our lives. In that mercy that we have gratitude towards Him so that we have strength to do and be a living sacrifice. To use our gifts to love one another and to not sin in our anger. To not pay people back. Not give them what you want to give them. And like I said, God, in His righteousness alone, He could have unleashed His wrath on all of us. So His mercy is very evident. But it's not His time to do that. It's our time to show mercy in God's righteousness, through God's righteousness. Obeying God is something that we need to do. It's our act of worship. It's something we get to do. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. And we're not our own, as Calvin said. And if we're not our own, why would we continue to walk in the old self, the old man, the old ways? If we're not our own, why won't we why don't we walk in the in the new self? Because we are new. Jesus didn't come here to die so that we can continue to be what we were. He came here to die so that we can continue to be on what we need to be for God. 
in our newness, we worship God and, and obey Him, and we live our lives in holy manner, in a holy manner, not staying separate from the world, not withdrawing from the world, but not conforming to it either. So we don't conform. We need to behave like we belong to Jesus Christ for His mercy's sake. Be real as Christians. And sometimes you say, oh, God bless you if you really mean it. Or have a blessed day. It's a big thing you say in our area. Have a blessed day. Do they really mean it? Do I really mean it? Don't hold back be true to the word. And remember to serve God when when trials and, and temptations come. But please, above all else, I don't know if there's any here who do not believe in Jesus. I'm begging you by the mercies of God be reconciled. Those of you who do know Jesus and believe in Jesus, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. Be a living sacrifice. Totally committed, totally sold out, all in. Worship Him with your entire being. Give God all that you have and all that you are. Stay in His Word.